You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 17th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. What's happening in Lebanon? Is Hezbollah about to launch an attack on Israel? What's Biden hoping to achieve in Tel Aviv? Putin's in Beijing. We'll ask if his love-in with Xi Jinping is ongoing. I'm Georgina Godwin. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guests Nina Dos Santos and Simon Brook will discuss the day's big stories in the Middle East and China. We'll also examine Stockholm's plan to create a new city district and have a look back at the roots of gay disco. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily, and I'm Georgina Godwin. I'm joined today by Nina Dos Santos, international broadcast correspondent and the former CNN Europe editor, and by Simon Brook, a journalist and communications consultant. Welcome both to the programme. We're going to start today in Lebanon, as reports emerge that Israel has exchanged fire with Hezbollah. We'll get the latest from the ground with Jamie Detmer, who's an opinion editor and a columnist at Politico. Jamie, many thanks for joining us. What do we know of these reports about shots being fired? Thanks for having me on. Well, they've been intensifying really since the attack by Hamas on Israel. They've been confined, they've been limited in scope, particularly at the beginning. But as I said, they have intensified. There's been some pretty ferocious trading of rocket fire the last three, four, five days. And also yesterday we had an attack by Hezbollah on five Israeli border posts. They say that they inflicted casualties. They have also posted the video of having destroyed an Israeli tank. I mean, what people are feeling at the moment, most analysts I've talked to and Lebanese politicians, is that this is indeed limited, but it's a prodding. It's an indication that Hezbollah is warning Israel that it is ready to intervene if the ground attack on Gaza proceeds. Mm. And, of course, Israel has announced that it will evacuate the towns closest to its border with Lebanon. An indication that the war is about to spread or just just caution? I think from their point of view, it's prudent because even though most of the attacks that come from Hezbollah, the strikes have been on military targets, they are fearful of civilian casualties. They have moved some of the reservists they called up to reinforce the border. So, you know, we're in this phony war at the moment. There have been very strong statements by the Iranians, who, of course, are allied with Hezbollah, are the sponsors, really, of Hezbollah, saying that they may take preemptive action. We've had it from Ayatollah Khomeini, from the Iranian foreign minister. No one is entirely clear. I mean, I think that one thing I noticed in the piece earlier this week is all eyes are on the border, the southern border. But what about the Golan Heights? We did get indications that some elite Hezbollah forces were moved up to the Golan. It could come from there if anything sparks. I had a meeting today with the senior Hamas representative in Lebanon. We have a story about it tonight or tomorrow morning, who was kind of indicating Hezbollah admittedly marring all of this in ambiguity is unlikely to attack unless 
Israel attacks Gaza on the ground. But saying that, that could be a double bluff as well. Mm. Uh, last week, we saw the killing of a, of a Reuters journalist, Issam Abdullah, in Lebanon by gunfire. Witnesses claim that came from the direction of Israel. What's been the reaction to that attack on the ground? And is there any indication that an independent investigation might actually happen? I don't know from the Israeli side whether there will be an independent investigation. You'd have to ask a correspondent. Uh, in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, that question. The reaction here muted because everyone's eyes are focused on Gaza. Some Lebanese politicians spoke out about the killing of the the journalist. I mean, it doesn't seem it was targeted. Uh, Five other journalists, I believe, were also injured in that strike. It was part of trading fire and being very close to where rockets are impacting. Mm. I mean, you're a journalist in the region yourself. How safe do you feel and what's it like being actually on the ground in this area, which is really at the centre of of what could be the next great conflict. Well, I'm an old war hand and an old Middle East correspondent, and I used to live in Lebanon. I feel very, very sad about what Lebanon may get dragged into. People here have a sense of foreboding. The country has gone through terrible times recently, the economic crisis, the port explosion. It did very badly during the pandemic. 85% of the population are on the poverty line, sorry, are below the poverty line. The country could be broken by this. And this is something that Lebanese politicians have been saying to me, the fear that if Lebanon is dragged into this war, it may never really recover. And it's struggling to recover now. How many times can you fall into the abyss, which is something that Lebanon has done for a long time? In terms of personal safety, as I said, I'm a old war correspondent, covered Syria and other places and Ukraine on and off now. Obviously, I'm slightly apprehensive that if the big one comes, it will be distinctly uncomfortable. But my thoughts really are that we are covering this from a country that is in terrible difficulties already without a war coming. We've got 1.5 million Syrian refugees. Where will they go if war comes? They won't go back to Syria. There's nowhere really for them to go. We could have a Lebanese refugee crisis on top of a Palestinian one as well. I mean, that is a perfect humanitarian storm, and that is depressing. Jamie Detmer from Politico on the line from Lebanon. Thank you very much. Well, listening to that, my panellists, Nina Dos Santos and Simon Brook, let's have a look at how the West is responding to this. So we'll start with the European Union. The European Council President, Charles Michel, convened a virtual conference with EU leaders today. He said that the bloc stood in full solidarity with the people of Israel after the brutal terrorist attacks and that Israel had a right to defend itself in compliance with international law. However, he also said the siege of the Gaza Strip is raising alarm bells in the international community. Nina, do we have any lines out of that conference yet? Um, I haven't seen any for the moment, apart from the fact that uh, obviously the EU, the European Commission has said on Saturday that it wants to triple um, its aid to Gaza to amount to at least 75 million euros. And obviously these council meetings are essentially head of state rubber stamping exercises. Um, But the real problem, uh, Georgina, is that that aid can't get through because obviously Gaza is currently under siege. Um, The EU is quite embarrassed about what was considered to be a very strong knee-jerk reaction at the end of last week, you may remember, when suddenly it said it was suspending all aid to Palestinians in general, even though uh, that aid wasn't going to Gaza. Um, Then they were told to row back on that approach and 
come up with a bit more of a nuanced approach to make sure that obviously Palestinians in the West Bank uh, still get aid. But at the moment, as you said, we've got this strong um, message here for proportionality in the fighting to make sure that civilians, um, you know, are civilians' rights under international human law are respected and then this large amount of aid that has been committed, but it just can't get through at the moment. Mm. Now, Joe Biden is going to Israel tomorrow, Simon. I mean, this presents many challenges. It must be a bit of a nightmare for his security detail. I mean, do we know how the, the so-called leader of the free world will be kept safe in a war zone? No, we don't. And of course, if you ever ask uh, the White House or Number 10 Downing Street or any government about security matters, the first thing they will say is, <clears throat> we can't comment on that. And that's completely... Understandable. I think, uh, obviously, security is a major issue for him. I think it shows the fact that he is very much, even though he hasn't necessarily felt comfortable with his sort of previous visit to um, to Israel, it shows how the US is keen to, to back I- Israel in this uh, conflict. And I think it shows how they'll be watching Israel's next actions very carefully. I think the real concern is that if Israeli... The Israeli response is excessive, uh, you know, that if they get drawn into some kind of street battle in in Gaza or leading perhaps to some kind of occupation or something, I think there's a fear that uh, in terms of the sort of opinion around the world, that could tip things against Israel and more in favour of the Palestinians and, and certainly uh, even Hamas. So I think that's probably what they'll be most worried about. I think it's interesting as well, if you put it into a broader context, of course, the last few US administrations we've seen trying to withdraw from the Middle East because it is such a quagmire or whatever, and then this Biden administration being drawn back into it. Don't forget, it was just a few weeks ago that Biden sent 3,000 troops into the area to try and... uh, see off any potential um, conflict like this. And of course, now he's been drawn very much into it. And given the the problems with the Netanyahu government, the sort of extremism uh, of some elements of that government, then it's a security is in important, as you say, but so many other considerations mm. as well that make life difficult. Nina, what political risks does Biden face? Well, back in the United States, um, pretty important ones. But I would say that some of them have been brewing for quite some time because remember that the um, we also saw the the very um, difficult scenes, chaotic scenes of the United States withdrawing very, very abruptly from uh, Kabul in Afghanistan. And that was under Joe Biden's watch. He doesn't want to sort of repeat a similar situation. Remember, there's a large number of US citizens who are hostage here in Gaza. Would, will this end up being um, a kind of Jimmy Carter moment, if you like, thinking back to 1979, the Iran hostage crisis that, you know, did for him when he was coming up for a second term. There's a huge amount at stake. And I think for that reason, we're seeing him replicating the type of um, effort that he made when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, turning up, trying to um, rally international support here. But also, the more US diplomats are on the ground in places like the Middle East, the more Israel pauses um, and, you know, really thinks about the considerations that Simon mentioned, not least the US warning um, the Israelis probably about the situation that US troops got dragged into in 2004 in Fallujah, where there was appalling uh, urban combat, a large number of US soldiers um, killed, 
so they'll be they'll be warning Israel that its reservists have very little training in these types of circumstances. They'll also be saying, what are you going to do if you displace all these people from Gaza? If, say, for instance, some of them uh, might finally manage to make their way over the border to Egypt, if Egypt opens up the Rafah crossing, will they ever be coming back? Mm. Well, of course, he's not the only world leader on the move. Russian President Vladimir Putin arrived in Beijing today to meet with the Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's only his second known trip abroad since the International Criminal Court, the ICC, issued an arrest warrant for him in March. Simon, why is Putin in China? Um, Well, there are opportunities here for trade. There are opportunities to keep that oil flowing, which is very important for him. I think there's, there's another opportunity here for Putin to take to the world stage. I mean, obviously, since he was served with an arrest warrant, by the International Criminal Court. It means there aren't many places that he can go to. Um, but but China um, is one uh, country that is not a signatory of the ICC, so that does offer opportunities. Um, I think it's interesting that Putin, this is his third attendance on the, the Belt and Road Forum, you know, this massive infrastructure project that a few years ago was seen to, to revolutionise the world. And I remember reporting on it uh, uh, quite a bit, and it just looked, as I say, as if it was going to be the most incredible opportunity for China to... Um, make economic inroads into the rest of the world and also thereby, you know, political uh, power as well. I think it's quite interesting that now there is the tide is really turned against Belt and Road. Um, It's seen as far less successful. Um, There are real concerns about countries that might be involved getting involved in debt about given the, you know, the, the, the fragmentation of China from the rest of the world questions about what exactly China wants to do about this. So I think there's something, um, you know, Putin would like to prevent, to sort of present, sorry, this triumphalism as he attends there. But the fact that he's arriving at something that just seems to be on the turn that isn't as popular as it once was, and perhaps does seem to be on the way out, I think is um, is quite significant. I suppose also um, Xi, uh, President Xi, will want to be very careful here of what kind of uh, endorsement he gives to the ongoing battle in Ukraine, because I think he's probably watching what is happening in Europe and in the US, of course, where where um, the support for Ukraine is just beginning to sort of ebb away a little bit. So mm. obviously he won't want to be uh, too sort of bull in a china shop, if, if you like. Um, he'll want to allow that support as he would like to see it sort of continue to ebb. I mean, there's obviously been Western criticism of Beijing's partnership with Moscow, particularly as the war in Ukraine continues. How does China justify its collaboration with a man wanted by the ICC for war crimes while still balancing its relationship with the West? I suppose from China's perspective, business is business. And the oil price is probably going to go higher from here, particularly if, as you heard um, in the first item on your show, Georgina, that we may, what's happening at the moment between Israel and Gaza could portend a much wider conflict in the Middle East. You know, that brings back, rings alarm bells, Um, thinking back to the 1970s and the sharp uh, spike in oil prices then, people like Xi Jinping will have studied the oil crisis in the 70s and they'll presumably be quite happy that China's huge economic machine can rely for the moment upon Russian energy. In fact, their trade, I noticed their trading relationships appreciated to the tune of about 30% since the Ukraine war started. So, you know, it's very much a... um, 
a mutually beneficial relationship economically from that point of view, um, irrespective, obviously, of, as you said, you know, the downside of being seen to be in bed with somebody who, um, you know, is responsible for bloodshed. Mm. We know that the two have economic cooperation, as Nina says, but is this a fully-fledged bilateral visit? Can we expect more economic agreements to be forthcoming after this? Well, uh, one thing we do know, of course, is that Putin is very much the junior partner here, isn't he? And uh, uh, various other uh, visits that he's made um, amongst countries that will receive him have also sort of made that clear. Um, I suppose the question is, uh, what opportunities are there for trade? And as you say, Nina, there's there's been this massive uh, increase in trade between the two countries. But of course, um, Russia's economic uh, power is diminishing even further. I mean, it's worth remembering that, you know, this is this was even before the war, despite its enormous size, its military might or whatever, this is a country whose, uh, who, who's the size of whose economy is something equivalent to Portugal. So it's not massive. And uh, as Russia pivots more onto a, onto a sort of a military economy, if you like, with more and more um, effort being put on weapon production. Uh, there will be more uh, workers who are um, drawn into the the armed forces. Um, military spending is is set to triple. Uh, yeah, I think there are real questions on certainly what economic benefit there might be to China here, other than oil. Um, but I think really what this uh, this um, meeting is about is less sort of economic, less commercial. It's probably more uh, political, really, and and just uh, this idea that setting up an axis of power, if you like, that is different. Uh, to the, the the Western, to the European and US. And of course, you have to put it in the context now of uh, both China and Russia's interest in what's happening in the Middle East as yeah, well. Absolutely. Uh, Nina, I wonder how the no-limits relationship cemented by Putin's last visit to China, just before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine's holding up. Is the bromance going well? Well, I think it's definitely still... They've definitely still got each other on speed dial, put it that way. Um, and... Um, North Korea seems to have joined the WhatsApp group as well, doesn't it? Let's put it that way. Um, because obviously uh, Vladimir Putin is reliant upon these countries to give him uh, electronic components that the West has frozen out for, say, for instance, everything from airlines to chips for cars and all that. The practicalities of keeping Russia moving and also keeping that contract that Vladimir Putin has with his own people, which is essentially, um, let's face it, you know, don't get too involved in politics and your quality of life will be better than it was um, in the aftermath of the dissolution of the USSR. Um, and he also needs uh, arms components from North Korea as well, doesn't he? Because, you know, we've seen, as you were just saying before, uh, Simon, this sort of spectacle of um, Vladimir Putin meeting uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea on the train. Now we've got Xi Jinping meeting Vladimir Putin in person. This sort of actors of countries that are removed from this Western alliance that's increasingly getting dragged into these what are now two potential big conflicts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, pushback against Russia's invasion of Ukraine is about the only issue where the US House of Representatives is almost unified. Uh, but without a speaker, no legislation on aid for Kiev or indeed for Israel can be passed. Today, the House has been voting on a new speaker, Jim Jordan, the light, hard right congressman from Ohio, who's backed by Donald Trump. Now, I'm just looking to our producers to see if there's been a result yet. They were actually having the vote as we came to air, but I don't think we know whether Jordan's been confirmed or not. Uh, So he 
I see he has five votes against him so far. He could afford to have had three and still be elected. Voters could change their minds before it all ends, so it's not official yet. Um, Who's been his main champions, Nina? Well, obviously, you've got the House Freedom Caucus, don't you? The really ultra-far-right part of the... The, the Republican Party that I think he was actually a founder of or founding member of. Um, and these are the very people who unseated Kevin McCarthy. Um, first time that we've seen the House of Representatives Speaker be unseated, I think it was about two weeks ago. And Kevin McCarthy himself had to go through a gruelling 15 rounds of voting before you know he could get these sort of elements in uh, Congress to, in the Republican side of the Congress, uh, to, to capitulate. And to do that, he had to make a few agreements that eventually they felt that he wasn't upholding. And as a result, um, you know, he fell on his sword. Jim Jordan is quite a sort of divisive figure. Uh, I presume some of our listeners and yourselves might have sat there and listened to him sometimes. He's he's really quite a combative figure. He has very sort of strong views. He's very pro-Trump. Um, and it's not clear that even if he manages to get the nomination, well, he's got the nomination, but even if he manages to to clinch it, whether he'll stay, because Kevin McCarthy, we now know, uh, was unseated. So there is precedent if people don't like him. Absolutely. So what if he doesn't win through? What happens next? Well, uh, confusion could reign. Um, There are questions about who would be the the next best option. Uh, There's a question about whether um, there could be some sort of collaboration um, with the uh, the Democrats, which seems uh, difficult in this current um, situation. But um, there is questions about, I mean, there there are other possible candidates. Austin Scott, who's a little known uh, congressman from Georgia, who announced that he was running for speaker on Friday. So that might be a possibility. Um, There's a possibility that uh, the acting speaker Patrick McHenry uh, might be granted extra powers on a sort of temporary basis for a few months, and that would at least allow the House to function and avoid this government um, shutdown. Uh, Also, of course, the other thing that might uh, drive people sort of focused minds is the situation in Israel, to come back to that, you know, that uh, um, that Ukraine might be a slightly divisive issue, but it does seem to be generally, especially given that Donald Trump has been such a, a vocal supporter of Israel, that uh, the idea that it's only by uniting that the US can provide Israel with the support it needs that might perhaps uh, bring the Democrats together, uh, mm. sorry, the Republicans together. I'm just seeing now that there are nine votes against him, so it's very clear that he's not going to make this round of voting. So, Nina, how long can the US government operate without a speaker? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? So there's, um, on November the 17th, I think the federal government runs out of money. So obviously they need to approve um, a new sort of stay of execution for the budget between now and then. I mean, it's not the first time that we've seen government shutdowns in the United States. You know, previous governments were plagued with this. Um, But they've got a real budgetary crisis if they can't uh, get this sorted out between now and then on the domestic policy front. And then obviously, when it comes to foreign policy, um, there's Israel potentially running out of munitions if Hamas keeps sort of uh, hitting the Iron Dome with those rockets. And then, of course, one of the reasons that Kevin McCarthy uh, um, was unseated was partly because of the question mark over whether or not funding to support Ukraine 
was ring-fenced inside a previous agreement to stave off, as I said, the government shutdown. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, there are many items on the agenda. Support for Ukraine, support for Israel, but also more domestic problems like the lack, for instance, of affordable housing. Now, this is something that Sweden is trying to address. In the 1970s, Stockholm built a venue that's largely become known for hosting the annual furniture fair. But now it's to be demolished and a new city district built in its place. Simon, what do we make of this decision to demolish the site? It's funny, isn't it? I mean, they have to say the number of... If you say it was built in the 1970s, that's sort of damning, really, isn't it? I think we all know uh, commercial buildings, blocks of flats, apartment buildings, whatever, that were built then and, and certainly have gone out of fashion. I'm actually surprised that some... Given this is also connected with design, Stockholm Furniture Fair, as you say, I'm surprised that some design guru hasn't decided to to preserve this, you know, the sort of brutalist architecture that 90% of the population would like to see the back of. There's always somebody who's willing to put their flag in the sand and say we should keep this thing. Um, I think it's interesting as well, the question of, you know, if you do demolish something, what do you do with it? Um, and and there's, there's sort of suggestions, I mean, here in the UK, in the north of England, with sort of depopulation, perhaps if you destroy, if you pull down homes or if you destroy sort of uh, pull down shopping retail because people are buying things on Amazon or, you know, there's not that demand or whatever, there's assumption that we'll have to build something else instead. But why, I mean, why not just rewild it? I like the idea of don't build anything, just turn it into a park or just plant trees and, and just let the whole nature take over again and, you know, suck out some carbon dioxide rather than creating it. Nina, what's your opinion? Oh, I feel really strongly about this. Uh, First of all, uh, I want to point out the irony of Sweden, a country that gave us IKEA, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which, by the way, is getting rid of some of its footprint or at least, you know, it's very much, uh, you know, uh, feeling the onslaught of online shopping, put it that way. but I, fe- I live next to uh, the Earls Court Convention Centre, which you might well know here in West London. Huge site. It was a centre of two big conference centres um, that eventually were bought and there was going to be a big development. Um, and lots of the sort of local hotels and businesses that uh, serviced all the travellers that came to this part of West London, they're... Now the whole conference centre has been flattened and sort of hangs in limbo. The developers don't have enough money to do what they were supposed to do with it. The planning people can't get the right approval. It's gone on for years and it affects local businesses, local hotels, as I was saying, shops, cafes, and just the the ethos of an area that thought it was going to have a huge amount of investment and now it just hangs in the balance. But I would say... I'm all for building on brownfield sites. Here in the UK, we have this huge debate, don't we, uh, political debate about whether or not um, the green belt should be opened up to build more affordable housing. We really should be decontaminating brownfield sites and building on brownfield sites. And it sounds as though perhaps they might do that. Mm. Well, but Simon, you don't want us to build. You want us to rewild and and no worries about the people who are desperate for affordable housing. Well, uh, no. I I mean, if it was to create affordable (laughs) housing, I I couldn't object to that. I suppose it just depends how you do it. And Nina, you talked about brownfield sites. The other thing, of course, we have to remember, certainly in this country, is what do we describe as as the the green belt isn't necessarily that green at all. It could be actually a car park, but uh, but has been described as green belt and therefore you can't touch it so perhaps we we should be building on that and it's also worth bearing in mind as well that in london like a lot of cities there are there are enough homes for everybody it's just that the economics and the legislation means that it actually suits a lot of people 
to buy a property and not use it, whatever. Mm. So uh, building, I think, is is one way of, of uh, handling the, the homelessness problem. But I think there are probably very controversial, but other sort of economic and social uh, changes that you could make. And have, have land I've... banking's a huge issue, you're right, in mentioning that, Simon. Even outside of the capital, isn't it? Big companies sort of just owning car parks exactly. and doing nothing mm. with them. Have either of you been down to Stratford, which was the former yeah. site of the Olympics, which, of course, was completely redeveloped? What do you think of that? Amazing. I, I remember covering the London Olympics and I remember uh, the broadcast this year and I worked for it at the time. I remember um, that we had uh, sort of the whole, we had, we had rented flats and uh, we had a whole balcony backdrop when you could see all of Stratford behind us. It was amazing to see how that area has changed. And I'm a born and bred Londoner. I'm all for urban regeneration. I think it's really changed the sort of compass as well of, of London, hasn't it? Tilted it further towards the, the East End in ways that wouldn't have been expected had that investment not been put in. Mm. You've been there. I do. And I have, absolutely. And I was just amazed. I mean, it is like, this is the 21st century. And I think the other place I was at recently was is Hoxton. Um, and just, I think that it works there, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? I was walking along and you can see flats, you can see families, children. There's a pub, there's a cafe, there's a shop there. And actually, if we're looking to, I mean, there's this theory of eyes on the street, isn't it? That the way to make better urban environments is to have people out there mingling and doing things um, that reduces crime, reduces social, social isolation, all those kind of things. And so I think, yeah, the real opportunities, is, as you say, Nina, with, with um, Stratford and, and other cities as well. And uh, it does seem to be, I mean, where I am in West London, in Acton, we've, they've built 9,000 homes. It's the most incredible thing. They've just huge, finished this. Yeah. Huge, but it, but it works. And by the, the A40, other, by the exactly, motorway. That's exactly yeah. it. And, it. and it does work. You know, there are, there's green space, there are playgrounds, and I was walking past there in the summer looking at these modern buildings bathed in the sunlight and I thought, am I really in Britain? This feels like sort of Barcelona or something. Do you know what I mean? It's got people out in the street and now cafes have opened there as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I think the real opportunities. That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you both, Simon Brook and Nina Dos Santos. Finally, it's time to look at the world of disco music. Box of Sin, released by the Disco Discharge label, is a look back at the definitive history of gay nightlife from the 1980s to 1989, from the sharp electro of the flirts to the all-time classics by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Monocle's radio's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, spoke to the compilation's curator, Mark Wood, a bit earlier. Mark Wood, welcome to Monaco Radio to talk about Box of Sin, a project that you've been heavily uh, involved. Uh, but first of all, Mark, we need to talk that you're part of Reader's Wives, the band, and I have to say, I'm a fan. And, and as soon as I met you, I remember of one of your tracks, Scum Pop, which I absolutely love. So tell us a little bit before about, about the band. How long uh, have well, you been doing Reader's Wives, by the, the way? The, the, the band is sort of on hiatus at the moment. The band came from the DJing, really, which we've been DJing as the Reader's Wife since 93, so 30 years God's sake, 30 years, yeah, <laughs> uh, this year. And then, you know, we met some friends who were musical and we put together some singles and we had a lot of fun making electronic pop records. It's really good to hear you say you like Scum Pops, just gone up on streaming fairly recently for the first time. So we're constantly saying we should do it 
do it again and uh, make some more music, but it's just time with the DJing and my day job and everything else. But thank you, Fernando. Oh. I really appreciate it. And extra projects like Box and of extra Sin. Projects, extra yeah. projects. I mean, yeah. I have this beauty in front of me. I have the vinyl. I know th- yeah. there are two versions being released, the vinyls and the CD, but it looks amazing. Box of Sin, full-length gay clubbing from 1980 to 1989. Yeah. Is that something that you always felt quite close and that's why perhaps you got involved with this project by Disco Discharge? There are a few reasons why I pitched the idea to Demon, who are the label who released it, One was, you know, very much enjoyed It's a Sin, the Russell T. Davis Mm. TV show, which was, you know, incredibly powerful bit of TV during lockdown. One thing about that show that kind of didn't quite ring true was the was the sort of soundtrack, because I was watching, you know, it looked very much like it felt in the 80s in London, going to gay clubs. But some of the music, I just sort of thought, wouldn't it be, you know, really interesting to tell the story of of what you really heard in the gay clubs in London? So sort of beginning, as you come out of disco at the beginning of the decade, by the end of the decade, you're, you're into, well into acid house and house music. And everything that happened in between was like my, that was my clubbing education. That was my musical education. I was sort of 18 when I went to my first gay club, which was the Black Cap in Camden, now no longer with us, uh, they used to have a thing on a Sunday. You know, Sunday lunchtime is a big thing, was a big thing in 80s gay life. And I'd been in London collecting for the miners' strike. You know, we, we were quite politicised kids. You know, we had stood with a bucket outside Camden tube station and a couple of our friends who were stall holders at Camden Market went, oh, come down to the Black Cap. So we all kind of went in, just kids, you know, went into the Black Cap and I could not believe what I was seeing on a Sunday lunchtime. It just did, I couldn't even believe it was legal. You know, loud music, drag queens, you know, men all over the place drinking, you know, fantastic. And A Jump For My Love by the Pointer Sisters, one of the tracks I remember most from that day, which will always remind me of that was, you know, my first sort of experience of gay, of gay clubs. From time to time coming to going to various pubs and clubs and then by the end you know I'm firmly living in London spent some time in Manchester in the 80s firmly back in London heaven and all of the sort of subsequent house clubs you know acid house the trip at the Astoria I was sort of right back there you get to the end of this box set and we're in Daisy Chain which was a really famous night in Brixton which was a brilliant club, so influential. And I just sort of, you know, thinking about it and thinking about the the way that the music had evolved. The 80s was, it was tough being gay in the 80s. You know, it was tough being young and gay in the 80s. You had had AIDS, which was, there was no treatment for it. There was no cure for it. Just at the point when we were sort of reaching our kind of uh, most sort of sexual maturity or whatever you want to call it. And there was a heavy negative press against Mm. gay people, queer people. 
and it, the whole atmosphere was very repressive. But but you know, in the in and people were dying, and you know, but in the middle of that that horrific kind of atmosphere, you had this really vibrant, homemade nightlife. And and you know, it's not just about London. You know, I saw mm. it in Manchester. It was global. You know, the the thing about about this music on this box set is that you'll find when you look at it that like this this music was properly international you know a a good club track could and still can come from anywhere you know whether that's italy or san francisco or the north of england or liverpool or whatever you know and i i, I sort of thought that that was quite interesting as well you know it was very very bleak politically and socially but culturally you, there was just this huge sort of like creativity and what these people were doing who were making these records they were sort of inventing club music as we understand it today you know electronic club music started at the end of the 70s with Donna Summer and I Feel Love which is sort of its influence looms over this whole box set And then whether you're going down the alternative route or the house route or whatever, you can kind of hear feel, hear I Feel Love just about everywhere on there. That was Mark Wood speaking with Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The music compilation Box of Sin is out now. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists today. They were Nina Dos Santos and Simon Brook. And the show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Georgina Godwin here in London and the Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. And I'll be with you on The Globalist first thing. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.